Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And that's Ray. (laughs) We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Quincy Jones' score to the Oscar-winning 1967 mystery drama In the Heat of the Night. In the Heat of the Night was written by Sterling Siliphant, based on a novel by John Ball. It was produced by Walter Mersch and directed by Norman Jewison. Andy, what's In the Heat of the Night all about? It's about a black homicide detective from Philadelphia who, while passing through a very white, very racist small town in Mississippi, is wrongfully arrested for a murder, and then after his name is cleared, ends up sticking around to help them solve it. It stars Sidney Poitier as Virgil, the police detective. Well, you know what? We should probably call him Mr. Tibbs. Virgil Tibbs, the police detective. And Rod Steiger as Police Chief Gillespie, who comes to have a grudging respect for Tibbs as they solve the murder together. It also stars Warren Oates, Lee Grant, Larry Gates, and a bunch of other people. So the plot, not that it matters, is that... (laughs) <laughs> An industrialist, Mr. Colbert, has come to the small town of Sparta, Mississippi to build a factory and rejuvenate the town. But then he's found dead in the middle of the night on the street. And the local law enforcement is really not up to the task of solving a classic murder mystery murder. But you know who is? Top homicide detective Virgil Tibbs from Philadelphia, who just happens to be passing through town. And if only they can get over their blinding racial prejudice enough to cooperate, they just might solve the case. Good enough? Yeah, good enough. And it'll be So Andy, I had not seen this movie before I watched it for this, even though I had, of course, seen, you know, five seconds of it very many times. (laughs) Nor I, and even though I. (laughs) This is one of those movies that is best remembered for a classic line that uh, I'm glad we (laughs) tried to make some acknowledgement of right up top, just to get it out of the way. Probably going to come up again. Yeah, I actually felt good seeing it in context and understanding it because it's one of those classic lines that, why is that a classic line? I don't totally get it. Now I get it. You're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. I mean, it's great. It's a legitimately great, electrifying moment. Sidney Poitier is incredibly charismatic and compelling. You really feel the righteous energy there. Yeah, it has an impact. I get why people remember it. I mean, it must have taken hold immediately as a takeaway line because I learned that they actually made a sequel to this movie that I had never heard of. And the title of that movie, made three years later in 1970, was... They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, The Further Adventures of Virgil Tibbs, this time in San Francisco with Martin Landau. Yeah, I think there's even a third one that someone made after that. And then, of course, there's the TV show, which I've never seen a minute of. You? No, 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 of course not. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you know who's in it? Yeah, uh, Carol O'Connor. Yeah, he really got typecast as, you know, lovable racists, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he seems like exactly the TV equivalent of Rod Steiger in this movie. It seems correct. I agree. I did want to come back to Rod Steiger for a moment because I couldn't help but think that, gosh, I don't know if there's anybody else who has such big heavy hitter movie lines said to him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He tees him up. Yeah, I mean, he gets told what they call him in this movie. He also gets told by Marlon Brando what he could have been. I don't think anybody else was on the receiving end of so much, you know, movie quote firepower. I'm not going to try and sort it out right now, but... uh, Seems like a good trivia question. (laughs) Who has two lines on the AFI Top 100 movie lines said to them? Yeah. Yeah, but I'd have to go through and see. There could be someone else. I'm not going to look it up right now, but it is an interesting point you make. Thank you. Um... This is most of what I have to talk about. (laughs) Are you saying that you don't know what to say about this music, John? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, um, uh, (laughs) how do you feel about the music? Just let's get right to the topic here. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I love this music. I think this is great. I love listening to it. And, And I really like the movie. Let's get that out of the way. How about you? I really enjoyed the soundtrack. Okay. Me too. I had some troubles with the movie, and Hmm. the more time I spent with the movie, the more I softened, because as you get accustomed to something, what's the point of having trouble with it? But it didn't entirely win me over. And then as a score, it's hard for me to tell whether it's my issues with the movie or with the score, but I I had some distance that never quite closed between me and the score. That's where I sit. I think I'm mostly with you. I think Quincy Jones is great, I think this movie is great, and I think a lot of the musical moments in this movie are great. But I also think that there's a certain amount of, yeah, distance, like you say, between the movie and its score in some other places that, that's another good way of putting it, didn't totally close for me as I was exposing myself to it. I think my feelings about this score, uh, in the words of Alan and Marilyn Bergman from one of the songs in the movie, (laughs) Baby, that ain't love, but it sure is groovy. <laughs> Where's where that lyric? It's in the song, It Sure Is Groovy, which can be heard on the radio as the local cop is driving the patrol car around town. Right as he discovers the body, he's listening to this crooner on the radio. Begin, baby, that ain't love, but it sure is groovy. And maybe we can start with this stuff. I think that the set of source songs that Quincy Jones put together for this is really well done. And I think back to things I was saying about how impressed I am with Henry Mancini having the skill of I was about to say. being able to pull styles, popular styles, to serve very particular source needs. Quincy Jones nails it with just as much acuity here, and it's really satisfying. Absolutely. Yeah, I was about to say that this is very much in the tradition of A Touch of Evil that we talked about, where Mancini dished up all of the stuff that you were going to be hearing on all the different radios throughout the movie because it was important to weave a cohesive sonic portrait of what the sound world was around these characters. And so it was all the same composer and is this incredibly versatile composer who has deep experience with many, many pop genres. In many ways, it's a similar thing here. Quincy Jones was asked, you know, not just because uh, it made it easier for the rights if everything was original to the movie, but because, yeah, it was key to an overall cohesive world of sound. I'll be honest, 
I think he's so good at it that I'm not sure it creates a cohesive world of sound because they really do sound like the different artifacts <laughs> they're supposed to be. I think it probably was mostly just done because he could and that was uh, cost effective. And I imagine he wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. They're done with such a fantastic ear for the styles that they're in and for what the movie needs out of those styles. Like this one that the cop is listening to as he drives around. And I love it. His car doesn't even have an actual radio built into the car. He's got like a little handheld battery powered thing that's hanging off of his rear view mirror. Yeah, it's these details that are trying to conjure up the feeling of the heat of the night, that you're in Mississippi in some small town and there's a sense of a certain kind of quiet and loneliness and the rundownness of this town. Mm -hmm. And the music is supposed to kind of bounce off the walls of the night here and sound a little too... A little phony, a little up in a way that the reality can't match. It's really convincing. It really does a good job setting the scene in the sense of echoing off the scene. Mm. I'm impressed with that kind of thing. Especially when this kind of boppy groove follows (laughs) the first tune about a bow-legged Polly and a knock-kneed Paul. Right, this is supposed to be this very countrified novelty song. Right. And it is, in fact, Glenn Campbell singing just before he got bigger than this. The audience, we're watching this guy and feeling maybe a little like, I guess down in Mississippi they'd listen to some crap like this. I think is what you're supposed to feel about that song, right? Yeah, I mean, the song is about, you know, backwater-type hillbillies. That's what you're supposed to be thinking about. Yeah, I feel like the movie is trying to give its audience a feeling of being somewhere a little off of their map. I think that this is a very Mm. uh, northern-targeted movie about the South, and it's supposed to make you feel like, oh, I've gone somewhere that... I'm a little out of the familiar, a little out of my comfort zone. As you say, very much like uh, Touch of Evil. There's a sense of the exotic, the strange, the kind of local detail that the viewer has to come to terms with. And when the music alienates you a little bit with these kinds of just little cultural markers that you're not really the audience for this. Who is the audience? I guess this guy. What does that mean? I think that's effective, and I think that that's pretty key to what the movie is supposed to be in terms of us being on side with Virgil from Philadelphia. I don't think it always does that, but I think in these songs it does that nicely. And then I think the other source music song that is prominently featured is, again, also by Quincy Jones with lyrics by that same husband and wife team, Alan and Marilyn Bergman. (laughs) This uh, we hear playing on the jukebox in the diner, Foul Owl on the Prowl. Foul owl on the prowl Cute little Jay stay out of his way Foul owl on the prowl Which again, is, it sounds like a novelty song. It kind of sounds like it has uh, Adam Driver's character from Inside Lewin Davis is, is on this track. Well, you know what this track is. Basically a sound-alike. They wanted to use that song, uh, Hey There Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there little red riding hood which uh, this is pretty close to a, a ripoff of that, obviously with completely different lyrics, but it's the same vibe. Yeah, um, I don't know about Foul Owl, but 
the feelings about right. It sounds like it's kind of about the one of the characters in Watchmen, somebody who dresses up as an owl and does stuff. <laughs> I think what it's about is, spoiler warning, <laughs> the guy who's on screen while they're playing it. In fact, it's basically the only thing that relates to the solution of the mystery in the entire movie. That's a good point. Well, I mean, once you know the the answer to the mystery and you watch the movie again, you realize that it's really showing you exactly what is what right from the very first shot uh, in terms of who would and wouldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> right. But that's cinematic gestures. In terms of actual mystery clues, there's nothing. It's true. There's nothing whatsoever. It's, true. It doesn't... it's a murder mystery movie in which the solution to the mystery could not matter less. Yeah. It's a movie of the civil rights era that's trying to be topical and stimulate the audience with thoughts and images about race relations. And then the package is... It's a murder mystery. Well, I think it succeeds in being topical and stimulating that stuff. And, and apparently you you weren't quite so sure? Well, I can imagine in 1967, with the state of Hollywood as it was at that point, this was a meaningful progressive step to even put this stuff on the screen, to make a movie about this, to make a movie for general audiences that is, you know, wrapped around a genre skeleton that they're going to investigate a murder. And so I get the renown that it has because we got to see Sidney Poitier slap a racist back after being slapped. And yeah, I get that. But from the vantage point that we're at now, it feels, yeah, like a northern movie about the South and like, honestly, a white movie about the black experience where the black guy doesn't really have anything to say. And when the white people speculate about what his inner life is, I didn't really buy it. And I felt like it was kind of shuttling him around to make a point uh, in a way that wasn't entirely satisfying to me from a point point of view. And also just from a dramatic point of view, I felt like it's sort of just a cipher at the center of it. And that represents where Hollywood's racial thinking was up to at that point. Much like we said about Touch of Evil, you know, making Charlton Heston a Mexican seems backward now, but at the time it was a progressive move. And I would like to see it from the point of view they had then and, and take them at their own terms. But in that movie, that movie really is about other things for the most part. This movie mostly is about the conversations about race and they were, I think, limited in their insight. That's how it felt to me. What do you think? I think those are fair criticisms of it being essentially a, a white point of view of the black experience. But I still found it disturbingly topical and, you know, pretty resonant with a lot of conversation that still is happening. And I really admired the confidence with which they put it on the screen. You know, the movie is set in a fictional town called Sparta, Mississippi. That doesn't really exist because it was shot in the actual town of Sparta, Illinois. And that's because Sidney Poitier basically refused to shoot a movie south of the Mason-Dixon line because these kinds of towns and this kind of treatment that's portrayed in the movie was all too real. You know, I read that they had to go to some southern locations for a few different scenes, you know, sort of over his protestations. And when he was down there, he slept with a gun under his pillow because he had had experiences nearly being killed by the KKK earlier in his life. You know, I don't think it overstates its basic premise of putting this kind of naked racism uh, front and center. Oh, no, I'm to be clear, I'm not saying that the depiction of racism is overstated. I think it's understated. And I think that the depiction of the reconciliation, uh, every time Sidney Poitier was like, oh, you make a good point. I thought, why? Why would he think that he's making a good point? This guy is awful. And I don't know what the redeeming qualities are. 
of Gillespie who gets everything wrong is... It's true. He really is not a good police officer. (laughs) He jumps to every conclusion that he can. And they try for some kind of psychological even-handedness where... Tibbs wants to leave town because just like Sidney Poitier, he does not want to be here. It's a dangerous and hateful place for him to be. And he wants to get out of there. And Gillespie says, no, you're not going to leave. You're going to stay because you just can't resist the opportunity to show us all up. Because you're so damn smart. You're smarter than any white man. You're just going to stay here and show us all. You got such a big head that you could never live with yourself unless you could put us all to shame. And then he like grudgingly turns around because, oh, you got my number. That's right. I, Virgil Tibbs, can't resist the opportunity to show you guys up. I thought, that's that doesn't seem likely at all. That seems <laughs> just like something being imposed on the character. If Tibbs ever said what he was thinking, maybe I could believe it, but they don't, uh, there's no room for that in this movie's imagination. And so then at the end, Gillespie is like, hey, uh, have a good one. What does he say? Something that's supposed to represent... <laughs> Virgil! Y'all take care now, you hear? Yeah, something like that. He doesn't, he doesn't say y'all, but I think you take care. You hear? And then Tibbs looks back at him and kind of grins like, I see you, yeah. Yeah. We've reached some kind of rapport. I don't believe that. These people did nothing remotely kind to him. They all called him boy and threatened to whip him. It's just like, I don't know what the movie thinks we think is going through Tibbs's mind. Fair point about Tibbs. I think the movie wants us to recognize that that a small step in reconciliation has been taken. That, you know, everybody in this town is super racist, and that includes the chief of police, Gillespie, the Rudsteiger character, definitely very, very racist, but is at least better able to compartmentalize his racism than uh, the other people around him because he recognizes that Tibbs is actually a good detective. And then that is a foot in the door that allows him to thaw a little bit and recognize, you know, fellow humanity and his fellow human. Uh, I think it's about a small, meager incursion into an enormous battlefront. And I think that's right. And I think that that is a story worth depicting that individuals can find a way past prejudice because they see each other as individuals and then that makes them check their prejudices. I just didn't like the kind of attempt at symmetry in this movie in which there is no symmetry. Okay. But I see that in 1967, that's where they were and that's what they were capable of. I didn't feel disgusted or angry. I just felt a little like I can't really get into this. And I also couldn't get into it because I think Norman Jewison's idea was that you package the social commentary into a genre plot that's compelling in its own right. And I found the murder mystery aspect of the movie alternatingly dull because cliched and confusing because not really sewn together completely. So uh, I didn't know what to sink my teeth into other than some sense of atmosphere and of the two faces of Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger kind of having a little acting face off of two completely different styles of acting. (laughs) That's compelling. Talking about their faces, do you know how old they each were when they made this movie? I don't know. This is a little upsetting. Poitier is 40, and he's a good-looking 40. And uh, (laughs) Rod Steiger is only 42. He looks like he's about 60. Yeah, well... (laughs) Well, you said that what is left in the movie that you could identify with was a sense of atmosphere. And so maybe that's a way back into Quincy Jones's work. Because I think that Quincy Jones wasn't motivated to paint different individuals very much. 
There is not really musical material that is for Virgil Tibbs as opposed to the town of Sparta, Mississippi and its police force. It's sort of all the same milieu. And I mean, I dug how he created that milieu. Yeah, but I want to ask you about this. Okay, ask me. On the soundtrack, listening to all of this music, it feels like the music of In the Heat of the Night. It's the heat and the night and mm-hmm. the mystery and the tension and the history and, you know, the unspoken racial story. All of those things are bound up in the style of this music. But in the movie, as you say, it doesn't really differentiate what it's for or who it's about. And that kind of left me hanging because I didn't know quite how to apply it. I don't know if that's because I was having trouble with the movie or because it's really in the score and I want to hear from you. The movie is based on the blues. Mm-hmm. Who's got the blues here? Hmm. That's a good question. And I think that question is ultimately why I didn't feel like I totally clicked with this score as it played in the movie. But I guess in answer, you know, in sort of a non-answer answer, let me talk about where I thought the blues that we got to hear in the score did its best work. Basically, the first cue in the movie, you know, we hear the title song sung by Ray Charles, and then there's no music for a good long time in the movie until the introduction of Sidney Poitier. You know, after the murder has been discovered and we've met some of the locals, this track, I think it totally makes the movie the way that this music plays over this scene. Do you agree about that? I think that whatever the movie is doing, this defines it, but this is, I can ask the question about this scene. What is the music saying to you? Yeah, well, I was trying to lay out what the music was saying to me because I felt very strongly that it was saying the right things in the moment when I first watched it. And they're a little vague and you kind of have to drill down a little bit to articulate what the things are. I don't even know if I want to give Quincy Jones full credit for the effect I felt this music has on the scene because it's sort of just some blues. I'm actually not certain how specifically he spotted this movie. I definitely get the sense that some of the music that was written was just like, let's do some music like that and then figure out where we can stick it in the movie. Maybe this is music that was, you know, he just got his bands to play because, oh, it'll be good to have some music like this and we'll find a good spot for it. I just don't know how strong the intention was to put this music against this scene. But now that it is there, I think it is a really eye-opening example of what music is capable of doing in a scene in a movie. Okay, so this is the scene, as I said, where we first meet Sidney Poitier. We first see him waiting in the train station in the dead of night to take the very early morning train back up to Philadelphia. He was down in the South visiting his mother, and this is his connection for some reason. And there's been a murder in the town. Police Chief Gillespie dispatches his police officers to check, you know, round up the usual suspects to look for places where there are people who don't belong because he doesn't really have a good idea of how to actually do police work. So he sends this police officer, Wood, played by Warren Oates, sends him to the train station just to see what's up there. And sure enough, he discovers that there is a black man just sitting quietly there, which in the mind of Officer Wood is proof enough of guilt. On your feet, boy. And so he proceeds to hold him at gunpoint and put him up against the wall. I mean now. And put him in handcuffs and 
tell him to get in the squad car to drive back to the station based on no evidence whatsoever other than there's a strange black man here. He must be the culprit. I think he looks in his wallet and sees that he has a bunch of money and thinks, well, that clinches it. Okay, but he had no reason, obviously, to stand oh, up against yes, the wall. of course. So this is the scene, and this is, golly, a tricky and a prickly thing to put on the screen, and, you know, unfortunately, still resonant, and it is kind of tough watching. And if you just watch this scene silent, if you could imagine it without music, it feels terrible to look at. This guy's, you know, barking at him. He's calling him boy every other sentence. Just a very stark denial of humanity to put on screen, especially in 1967. Or as now, it's just, you know, it's yes. a frightening and cruel thing that's yes. very discomforting for the audience. Yes, very discomforting. And yet, feet, watching this for the first time, I don't have to just sit here and cringe about how cruel it is. I have this music here helping me. I mean now! It's this very simple blues thing. It's not even a blues. It's just going back and forth between these two seventh chords, you know, one and five. Just rocking back and forth between these two easy-does-it chords. And there's some twangy guitar, and there's an attitude, honky-tonk kind of piano sound. I believe it's a tack piano, which is a piano that has been made deliberately tinny, by sticking tacks into all the hammers so that metal strikes the strings. And it sounds like a caricature of a saloon or of mm-hmm. a very rinky-tink piano from some rural setting. That's the kind of evocation that that sound creates. You know, I didn't think about it until you just gave that description of a tack piano, but I think I've played on a piano that's like that. Here at, uh, at the Largo Theater in Los Angeles, the piano that is on the stage, there is a lever that you pull underneath the piano. It's sort of like an organ stop, but what happens when you pull the lever is that a metal bar is lowered, and hanging off of this metal bar are a bunch of cloth strips with little, yeah, tacks or just circles of metal, so that when the bar is lowered, these little metal things get dangled down yeah between the hammers and the strings yeah that's the less destructive way if you stick tacks directly into the hammers you're pretty much committing to ruining the hammers for any other use if you have one of these movable bars of metal you can still use the piano for other things yeah but again it's not the, the bar of metal doesn't get in the way the bar is like a curtain rod that has these little things hanging off right. of it all like you know 88 of them i suppose or it doesn't go the whole length of the keyboard 60 of them say that all drop down in between the hammers and the keys and i have pulled that lever on many an occasion to indeed create a saloon piano effect While we're stopped and talking about this piano, maybe we should mention who's playing this piano. Oh yeah, it's all famous people. It's all big time musicians. The band that Quincy Jones put together for this score is, yeah, a murderer's row of musicians. The keyboards are played by Billy Preston, you know, just a couple years before he would play on Let It Be with the Beatles. I think the organ is played by Billy Preston. And there's somebody else playing the tap piano. I think Bobby Scott is playing the piano. All right. The bass here is all-time great jazz bassist Ray Brown, who played with everybody, you know, with the Oscar Peterson trio and umpteen other jazz greats. That's his very present note-putting. Nobody could just sort of lay a note there with such deliberate putting as Ray Brown. 
bass being the sort of literal foundation of the musical sound that you're hearing. You know, Ray Brown was just always the best contractor for your musical basement. We can name other people on here, but maybe we should save it for when we're actually listening to them. Say what you're going to say about this cue. Okay, sorry. Yes. So these easy does it, easy breezy seventh chords just sort of wandering around. And then there's a flute in there, too. This flute player all through the movie is doing these kind of chunky flute notes where he's kind of growling and even yelling into the flute. Yeah, that's Roland Kirk, later Razan Roland Kirk, who was a, an original, a blind flutist, a saxophonist. He would do wild stuff on stage and was willing to, yeah, speak through the flute. Brings this very raw, kind of free, primal sounds to the scoring. And I'm sure Quincy Jones didn't write out that he should do those things. He called in these great musicians yeah. and they jammed, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of blind musicians that he called in, there's actually a track on the soundtrack that is piano solo by Ray Charles that I don't think it's used in the movie, but, you know, he was just, he was in the soup. Okay, but let's let's land the fish here. What what does it do for you? What does this do for me? These like low down easy bluesy chords just rocking back and forth while this awful cruel scene is happening immediately gave me the feeling that don't worry, the movie thinks this is bad too. And we're with you. It's okay for you to watch that. And what's more, it made me feel very strongly that it's okay because Sidney Poitier is above this. Sidney Poitier is cool in the face of this injustice. I mean now. You know, he very calmly, very quietly, just does what the guy says, doesn't resist because he knows he can't, but he at the same time just has this quiet dignity that... I am better than the thing that is happening to me now. And somehow the music gave me that. It was his quiet confidence. It was his disdain for the type of place where this would happen to him. I did start thinking about the blues and what the message of the blues is because... The music basically makes the message of the movie be, as much as it can, be the message of the blues, wouldn't you say? I mean, the, that song that Ray Charles sings at the beginning, that is more or less a blues song, like a gospel blues, and then that becomes pretty much the seed for everything else in the score. And I thought something similar to what you're saying, that the message of the blues is that there's solace not in anything getting better, but in the fact that your bad experience is a human experience, is, a, mm. is a, a, an experience worthy of art, is an experience shared by other people, yeah. an experience that has a kind of communal recognition, and it has this form, and when your life is painful, you are at least participating in this shared thing. Yeah, it makes it feel like, here we go again, right? That the pain I'm feeling is part of a larger tradition of feeling pain. And it can be sung to the same chords that everybody's pain can be sung to. Right, that there is a singer. You don't have to be the person saying, my mama done told me that blah, blah, blah. 
someone else is saying it, but you relate to it, and the relating is the value of it. I think that's right, the relating. And to me, the relating that this music was doing for me in this scene was telling me that we, the audience, we don't have to credit this racism. We are on the side of people who know better. And we know that Sidney Poitier knows that he is better than this. No, you didn't feel that? Well, I feel like the things you're saying went pretty much without saying. It's hard for me to imagine a Hollywood movie of this era that would endorse the way Sidney Poitier is being treated in this scene. I feel like yeah, but that's even, part of the scenario. Well, but the point was to depict it because, you know, it was this ugly underbelly of society that wasn't spoken about. So maybe I'm misunderstanding you. I thought you said that the blues, the kind of recognition that the blues gives you here is telling you, don't worry, we are not on side with the cop. We're on side with this guy who feels demeaned by this but above it. And that without that music, you you might have needed to be guided to that? No, I don't think I was in danger of thinking that the movie was agreeing with the cop here. But it softens the presentation of it. In it a definitely w- softens it. I agree that it softens it. And I guess the question is, on whose behalf is it being softened? What experience are we pointing ourselves to here? Yeah, well, it's a little vague. And if that's what you're getting at, I agree with that. And I think it does sort of feel vaguer in other parts of the movie. At this point in the movie, I felt it very productively as telling me, it's okay to watch this and to feel above it and to have a critical perspective on this. I think the music was allowing me to have a comfortable spot from which to watch this and have critical thoughts about it. I think that is so important to this movie. I think it sets the tone for the whole movie being taken in in the right way, in the way that it's intended. Yeah, I think there's no question that it's supposed to be reassuring for the audience. I suspect that the intention was for it to be saying something like, we all know what this is, we all recognize this, mm-hmm, there it is. And that's the relating. Like, we all have the blues because of this kind of thing, and we're all in this together. I imagine that was the intention, but the effect, that's just not how it actually landed for me. On the commentary track, Norman Jewison, the director, is talking about Haskell Wexler, the director of photography, who I think mostly comes off very well in this movie. A lot of the photography is nice. Haskell Wexler received a lot of praise and notice for really taking care to light, darkly colored skin for the first time in movies, that he recognized that there always had been way too much glare on black skin and he figured out a better way to light it so that it's much more flattering. So in this scene, Jewison is saying how satisfied he was with the shot of Sidney Poitier with his hands against the wall and his head Mm -hmm. hanging down between his arms so that his face is still in shadow and you see the posture, but what's going on in his interior is a mystery that the shadow that's being cast on his face. Mm -hmm. He says it makes the audience think, what is this guy feeling? What is this like for him? Because you're not seeing it, because they're sort of leaving it hidden. And that question lasted me the whole movie, and it seemed somewhat deliberate that that question lasts a long time, that they don't let you know too much about what uh, Mr. Tibbs is feeling when he shouts, they call me Mr. Tibbs. It's one of his few moments of releasing the rage that he must be tamping down all the time. For the most part, he keeps it as cool as he can. And that felt to me somewhat at odds with this kind of sauntering knowingness of the blues here. Hmm. 
because it didn't seem to be coming from him. This does not sound like Sidney Poitier. And then once it's not coming from the character, I started to feel like the movie is casting itself as the same old thing, here we go again. And in a movie like this, it's really sensitive where the line, where the border of here we go again is. Hmm. Like, There was something in this scene that made me feel a little like it was saying to relax into this scene, to kind of yeah. enjoy its familiarity. The way that you enjoy all of the familiarity of a genre mystery movie, which is how genre works, you know, it's like in a murder mystery, you're there to relish the appearance of things that you expect. And when this music kicked in for this scene, at some level it seemed to be saying like, here's what you came for, hmm. and here's the groove of it. And I guess I am now going to extend to say over the whole score, Quincy Jones has a hard time not writing music that feels good. Mm. And I didn't always know what to do with the way that this movie felt good. I didn't know how it related to what it was about. Yeah, I I definitely felt good watching this scene. And I'm sort of looking back over that feeling and trying to reconcile it with the fact that it's a scene that depicts something that I don't feel good about. I'm attributing that to, yeah, that the music was helping me to watch something difficult and feel above it. But I think I see what you're saying, that it's unclear what exactly the point of view is that it is underlying, because I felt like I was kind of having my cake and eating it to this scene. On the one hand, this music could be interpreted to be the sound of this backwards old hick town. You know, it's low down and dirty and simplistic and easy to feel superior to, which is how Virgil Tibbs feels towards this town and its people. He feels superior to it. Even this episode that is standing him up against the wall with his arms over his head, is something that he can float above with his disdain. So the music, on the one hand, could be the sound of what it is that he is disdaining. On the other hand, it also is sort of functioning as the sound of how cool he himself is. He is calm in the face of this. He is even keeled and put together. And, you know, this bluesy stuff is the sound of not being flustered. So in this moment, it felt like a sort of profitable melange of both the thing that I can get to feel above and the coolness of what it's like to feel above it. And if you trace those lines throughout the movie, yeah, I agree it's not always clear from what point of view exactly we're supposed to feel the good feelings that the Quincy Jones music feels. Like I said earlier, I don't think that he really thought about there's music for these people and there's music for this person. There's not a differentiation in his music. He put together this band and he put together this sound that takes from many different pots, that takes from blues and southern music traditions, but also takes from crime jazz and other less locally sourced kinds of sounds and just sort of puts them together and says, well, this is the sound of this movie. This is the sound of a genre crime murder mystery happening in this location. I think it's a great stew for accomplishing that, but now I'm very curious to hear you sort of, you know, point to a spot where you're not sure what direction it's asking you to look. Well, let's just cut sideways here to a cue on the soundtrack called Chief Drives to Mayor, I think, something like that. Yeah. 
Tibbs is not in this sequence. This mm-hmm. is Gillespie. It really, it's just watching a car drive through the main street in this town to the uh, the mechanics, to, to like the garage <laughs> where the mayor happens to work. Yeah, I didn't put that together until after, but yeah, the mayor is just a mechanic at some garage. <laughs> yeah, so the track on the album, it sets up this blues rock rhythm, and then it plays this peppy version of the tune in the heat of the night that Ray Charles sang at the beginning. they have cut out the tune. The peppy part doesn't happen. But you still hear the rhythm section and the feeling of this, the satisfying driving music. The blues are painted all over this picture of the chief's car driving through this southern town. Nothing to do with tips. It's just about atmosphere. The south sounds like blues. Mississippi sounds like the blues. It seems here and in several other places to be saying, All of this, anything that falls under the heading of In the Heat of the Night sounds like this. And the message there to me is uh, enjoy the show. Enjoy Mm -hmm. the show. And this is the theme tune of the show. Well, fair point. And speaking of this is the theme tune of the show, let's now (laughs) let's cut to another scene where Rod Steiger is driving his police cruiser, this time with Sidney Poitier in the passenger seat. They're driving up to the house of the rich, racist old plantation owner through actual cotton fields, past black people picking cotton. And this is the one sequence that they did convince Poitier to actually go to Tennessee to film because they couldn't find a cotton field. Yeah, in Illinois. In Illinois, yeah. None of that for you, huh, Virgil? And what you hear over this is, yeah, the theme song of the show. It's the title song, again with Ray Charles' vocals. This is not what Quincy Jones wrote for this scene. Right, this is really interesting. You can hear the unused music that he originally wrote for this scene. Which he said on one interview or another, they didn't use it because he felt angry about the scene when he was writing it. Not about that it was in the movie, but, you know, about what it depicts. Yeah, I mean, he felt the anger that Virgil Tibbs feels being driven past this. And he said he got too angry in the music for the movie. His claim for why this music was cut was that the music was a little too furious, too raw Hmm. for the movie. Well, that's interesting, right? Because It is interesting. Is that how it sounds to you? Yeah, this original track, which is called The Cotton Curtain on the soundtrack album, I don't think I would have used the word furious or even angry to describe this music. I can hear it once he says that once he associates it, it right. with anger, sure. But it's an artistic, it's a self-possessed statement of anger by a very cool guy with his amazing musician friends. It's the solace for anger, like the blues is solace for having the blues. It's not anger-inducing. Well, I don't think it quite works with the title song being sung over this. That did feel a little jarring to me. 
I mean, just from a plot point of view, you know, they've progressed a little distance in their journey towards the solution to the crime, and they're... Ostensibly. Uh, well, I mean, they still are, you know... They're on the wrong trail. They're on the wrong trail. They're following red herrings still, but they're working through the, the sequence of red herrings that they have to go through. And they, the two of them together, the main characters, have built up some kind of rapport in different directions back and forth. And it didn't feel right to me to hear the same thing that I heard right at the beginning, to hear... This car with these two guys in it driving up to this house, well, it feels the same as the visuals of the train yards that we saw over this song at the beginning of the movie, over the titles. I didn't quite like that statement. I wanted it to be something more pointed, more sensitive to where the plot was. But I also don't think that what Jones wrote for this would have quite gelled for me either, again, because... Yeah, it's a bit too cool and cheery, even. Yeah, like you said, the anger doesn't come across until you hear him say the word anger. Yeah, my point about the anger is that, again, the music is funky, you know? It's Mm -hmm. good, because Quincy Jones can't help himself but make his music feel really good doing whatever it's doing, be it anger or sadness. It's not... um, he, uh, in some of his interviews talking about his years doing film scores, he said that he used to use the term emotion lotion for what uh, <laughs> I, music I, and movies does. I heard that. Boy, well, how have we not been saying, how has the whole industry not been walking around saying emotion lotion all of these decades? Because we're not all cute. We can't live up to that. But um, yeah, this isn't... Emotion lotion. It's not emotion lotion for anger. Very little of the music in That's this true. movie is emotion lotion because the blues is a. <laughs> now that I said that we should all be saying that all the time, I'm not. I, Please stop. Okay, I'm not I sure won't say we it should again. be saying that all the time. I'm just differentiating because he <laughs> talked about a type of scoring which was to manipulate, essentially, to create emotions in the audience or to steer a scene into a certain emotion. And his instinct as one of the all-time great producers and arrangers is to produce good music. And that ends up leading to this kind of satisfaction of listening that isn't necessarily Hmm. congruent with the dramatic experience. And in that sequence, I'll actually defend the solution they came to of putting the Ray Charles song over it. That is one of the places where I thought, now I get what the blues is about. It is about the black experience it is about the entire past you know the history of cotton plantations and slavery and the state of things now the grand picture that we can assume is what's going through the characters heads as they look out the windows at this scene that to me merits the blues it's like you look at the way the world is you look at these huge problems and it gives you the feeling of the blues and here comes the the balladeer of this situation ray charles's voice comes over to sing about uh to sing about what about it all about the the black experience what the blues originally is And so for that voice to come up in that scene, the part where the movie is, at least believes it is, looking directly at the social comment, that felt sensible to me. That's interesting. More than it felt sensible for there to be blues over a scene that is kind of part of a mystery movie, so what, you know, where am I supposed to take this? Uh, that's very interesting, and, and I think you've nearly talked me into it. I didn't hear it, and I didn't feel it that way as I was watching, because... I don't know, the 
Ray Charles singing this song. I mean, the lyrics of the song, which again are by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, are about that in the heat of the night, he feels motherless, and the stars are evil, and and just like everything feels wrong in the middle of the night. He's all alone. Yeah, but if you just sort of let the music wash over you, I don't think you get that feeling from this song, and, and that's maybe why it didn't connect with me in that same way, is that it just feels like super megastar Ray Charles singing a very slick, fun song to listen to. Oh, I feel it. I feel like that this is a legitimate, you know, it's a pastiche blues because Alan and Marilyn Bergman are just doing an impression, but uh, they said that when they played it for Ray Charles and they told him that these two had written it and he said, are they brother and sister? And someone said, no, they're, they're a married couple and they're white. And he said, no, they ain't. Which is a compliment they took with them and their favorite compliment ever, that they had gotten it right. Sure. I, I saw where, where Ray Charles described the feel of the song overall as, uh, what was it? What did he say? Maximum green. Maximum green. Which, when I first heard that he said Maximum Green, I thought he meant, this is a great song, we're going to make a lot of money out of it. Which, I'm still not totally convinced that that's not the actual explanation. But you saw the thing where Quincy Jones explains it, and I have to take his explanation as authoritative. Yeah, the, the explanation that it refers to collard greens. That uh, it's like soul food, that it, the, you know, this is as good as soul food. I am... I maintain a little bit of skepticism <laughs> that there could have been that other meaning in there, too. But why not? It can be both. Norman Jewison also recounted that when Ray Charles was watching the movie, which Ray Charles couldn't see the movie, but he was listening to it and having things explained to him. And in the famous scene where the big rich racist on the hill slaps Tibbs for for whatever supposedly impudent thing he just said. Just for daring to question him at all. And Tibbs slaps him right back immediately. Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say last night about midnight? Uh, which apparently got gasps and cheers and applause in 1967. And that Ray Charles said, did he just slap him back? And they told him yes. And he said, maximum green. (laughs) Norman Jewison said, he was so cool, I never understood what he was saying. (laughs) Yeah, I I did see where Jewison was saying that. Yeah, Ray Charles was so hip, but uh, I didn't know what he was saying. But it seemed like it was good. It seemed like it was a good thing. Yeah. Okay, so the lyrics. I was saying that it seemed appropriate. You said you don't hear that. You feel like you're hearing a good time song when you hear this song. Yeah, I think I'll stick to that, even though you you speak very convincingly about it. I mean, I have a tendency to not pay too much attention to lyrics on my first listen to things. I'm just kind of taking in the overall musical feel. And I think if you're not listening to the specific words about being lonely, I don't think it gives off loneliness. Well, I was listening to them, and I respect, in the art of writing movie theme songs, I respect how oblique this song is. Mm -hmm. It takes the title, and then it goes sideways with it. There is no point at which a character is really being the narrator of that song, which allows it to be a bigger poetic statement. And then you could choose to apply it to any of the characters. Unfortunately, Tibbs just never really shows enough dimension to kind of get it. It seems actually more likely that Gillespie is singing it because he talks about how he lies awake at night and is lonely. Hmm. But uh, but that just seems like a mistake in the movie. (laughs) So we were talking about what music should play over the scene of them driving in the car together through the cotton fields. 
What did you think of the music that played at a different scene of car driving where Sidney Poitier is getting chased by these racist hoodlums who are trying to rough him up with their car with the Confederate flag license plate? This car chase scene gets this, again, kind of cheerful-sounding, rollicking action music, and the horns are saying nanny-nanny-boo-boo in this music. Which, um, it's a little jarring, at least to us now, right? I mean, to your point, who is saying nanny-nanny-boo? I guess we're supposed to put nanny-nanny-boo-boo in the mouths of the bad guys here because they're taunting him? or My read on that was that Quincy Jones slash the movie is saying that these kinds of hoodlums of lowlifes are basically kids on the playground mm-hmm. and we should have disdain for them. We should feel as superior to them as we do to the infantile twerps saying nanny nanny booby to each other. That sounds like the right interpretation. It was a little uneasy for me to hear it that way. That basically is defanging the threat in the movie. I wasn't sure if it was there to serve the white audience who was supposed to not be too upset by this movie because, you know, it's pretty daring for a white audience. So don't worry, this is all in good fun if it's being kind of dished up to soften it for them. Mm -hmm. Or if it's there to steal the black audience or to steal Quincy Jones himself who does not want to have to be scared of these losers and is going to not miss any opportunity to show that they're losers, or if it's there just to kind of add comic excitement, just interest for the sake of interest, which I think is the explanation for why there is a long active chase scene earlier in the movie where some guy we don't know who it is is running from the cops. We don't know exactly why. We sort of assume that he's a suspect that they're trying to chase down, but we just have to watch a lot of chasing. And Quincy Jones has written a lot of chasing music. And I think it's just there because uh, a movie should have such things in it. Is that about right? I guess so. I mean, if you're going to film a chase scene, if the cameras care about it, then the music should. And why did the camera care about that scene? Because it's fun to have a chase scene. Because it's fun to have a chase scene. So maybe the nanny nanny boo boo is in there because it's fun to have a chase scene and Quincy Jones wants to get in on the fun. Yeah. I really don't know which of those it is, is what I'm saying. I mean, I think you're throwing a lot of valid ideas at the wall and some mix and match of them is the answer. I mean, why does he... For the suspect chase scene that you were just mentioning, and for a bunch of other things in the movie, he has a vocal percussionist, essentially kind of a beatboxer, mm-hmm. making, you know, cha 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 like saying cha-cha-cha sounds in the percussion track. And you can really hear it featured when all the band drops out except for the percussion. For this great shot of the suspect running over this bridge from far away and you hear this and then that same guy keeps going as the band comes back in and then you can especially hear him against the closing chords which are these like yeah crime jazz fourth stacks Like, it's not really fair to the score to have been characterizing it this whole time as, like, just some blues and feel-good groove music. He does also do a lot of, like, crimey stings and ominous... He plays Jaws a little bit in it. It's all so tasty and well-deployed. All of these flute stacks turning around. 
I love this cue where Tibbs and Gillespie have a standoff and they stare at each other and Lee Grant says, uh, what kind of people are you? And there is this building tension, building tension, and then the scene cuts to they're taking Sidney Poitier downstairs into the jail, and the tension is just sort of released through this side door escape valve with this three note crime jazz stack chord going boo doo doo. With this perfectly chosen mixture of muted and non muted horns. There's a lot of really cool moments like that where he is putting crimey sounding stuff in there because it's a genre piece too. Those felt to me like the movie was pulling in, hey, we're also this kind of urban noir transplanted to the South. But I don't know if I ever was convinced by that stuff. And I want to go back to the very first thing I said. When I listen on the album without the movie going, Blending all of this stuff, stirring it all together is fantastic because that's who Quincy Jones is. He is a studio genius and he can like stir stuff together in his pot and make amazing tasty stuff. I mean, we should talk a little bit about what an we gotta insanely talk about accomplished guy this is. It's absurd, all of the things that he's had his hands in. It is. It's absurd. The things he's done and the things he's capable of doing, and he's been doing them for 70 years, and he uh, he's genuinely multi-stylistic, multi-talented. And to finish the thought that led us here, I think that his interest in blending eclectic influences because, you know, his jazz, he always wants to bring some classical sensibility to it, and his pop, he wants to bring a jazz sensibility to it, and his composition, he wants to bring a pop sensibility to, and this is just what Quincy Jones does and is so good at. As music, to have, oh, well, that sounds a little like crime jazz, but that sounds like southern blues, and that sounds like kind of rock blues, and that sounds like high, you know, abstract composition, and oh, but that, where did that guitar come from? It's exciting, and he finds ways to blend them. And so I love that. And yet, as scoring, if each of those elements has a slightly different take on how drama works, it doesn't always blend in my mind. But yeah, all right. Let's give a little rundown on the on the career of Quincy Jones. I mean, maybe it would save time to just name famous American musicians that he hasn't worked with. Um, I wouldn't feel safe saying anyone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he came up playing trumpet in the original big bands. I think he was in Lionel Hampton's band was the first band he was in. But then he did arrangements for, I think, Dizzy Gillespie. And- That's right. And for Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Tommy Dorsey. And he was producing hit records back as early as the early 60s for things like Leslie Gore and It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. And then go on to arrange and produce iconic all-time albums from Frank Sinatra, like Fly Me to the Moon.
goes on from there. I mean, meanwhile, he had studied in Paris with Nadia Boulanger, crying out loud, and Olivier Messiaen. And sometimes people say, oh, I studied with X, so that it just sort of burnishes their resume and who knows how much studying they did. But I heard him giving some anecdotes about things that Boulanger taught him and it sounded pretty substantive. Oh, yeah. I I mean, you can tell he just has it all in him. He knows all of these styles for real. And then, of course, he produced, you know, only the best-selling album of all time, Thriller and other stuff with Michael Jackson. We Are the World. And the the mega mashup hit, We Are the World. And, uh, you know, he's just written arrangements. And he wrote wrote Soul Bossa Nova, the tune that's the Austin Powers theme song. He wrote that early on his tune. I didn't know that until I just saw this on his list of accomplishments. I knew that because he cameos at the beginning of Austin Powers 3. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Quincy Jones! That's how you knew it? No, I knew it before that because that tune is so great. He's such a good arranger. Even a little piece of nothing like that is so full of... I mean, they use it for Austin Powers because you just hear a few bars of it and an entire world of swinging 60s just comes open your mind. And he said of that piece, he was like, I wrote that in 20 minutes 50 years ago. And I'm sure he did. He just had an incredible facility at every that, that was with his own band he had his own bands at various times he released his own albums he does it all and we haven't mentioned scored 30 some movies including the color purple for a long time he was the only person besides john williams who had ever scored a film for steven spielberg that's right i think he produced the movie too that's right he did it he discovered you know Whoopi goldberg and oprah winfrey essentially and if you ever read an interview with him or his autobiography He is just an endless fount of risque anecdotes about everyone (laughs) and everything. That is true, yes. He's an amazing guy. And I think with genuinely super prolific, multi-talented people, any given thing that they do might get a little underrated. Mm -hmm. I think that the idea of Quincy Jones as an important film composer seems like, oh, yeah, I guess he did write some film scores, which is probably unfair to him because you could just look at his career as a composer of film scores and say, hey, look at all of this great work he did. And so in some ways, all of that other stuff he did is irrelevant to what we're talking about here, except it shows. It shows that he came from these other worlds. When we were talking about uh, Lalo Schifrin, we said it shows that this guy didn't just wake up and start composing film scores. He had all of this other knowledge, too. And yeah, this seems like a score by a master producer, arranger, wrangler of talent. Like you said, everything in it sounds good. It sounds great. Listening to this album is a great time. And I think that when the idea of feeling great aligns with what this movie is trying to do, for me, it really works. I think at bottom, that's what I was having such a hard time putting my finger on. What was so powerful to me about the introduction of Sidney Poitier's scene where he's getting arrested is this feels good. And so now I have to set my brain to understanding why am I feeling good while I'm watching this? And I came up with what felt to me as valuable reasons to feel good. I feel good because I know that Sidney Poitier is above this and I know that the movie feels the same way about what I'm watching. But it really is just sort of giving you, injecting you, feeling good about stuff while you're watching. And that is 
powerful and at the same time potentially problematic because you know who it is who should be feeling good you know should the audience feel good do the filmmakers feel good do the characters feel good is not always consistent throughout this movie and you can go through and maybe take a little issue with you know who should have been made to feel so good but at the end of the day i really got a lot out of this movie and i felt like i had music make me feel good and that's the oleo of things that I will take away and call a satisfying movie and movie music experience for myself. But I absolutely hear your misgivings about it because it doesn't quite have the detailed sensitivity to perspective that other things we've talked about have. I think that a lot of the issues I had with this movie are almost inevitable problems with willfully topical movies. Hmm. They age faster than other movies because they are trying so hard to encapsulate the mindset and the needs and the worries of the audience of a moment. That's absolutely true. I can't deny that at all. And yet I felt this had stood up pretty well. I mean, having not seen it when it came out, of course, but it felt still pretty resonant and... uh, I guess I was able to fold in my knowledge of the fact that it was pitched to 1967 eyes and ears. Uh, I was able to fold in my knowledge of that as I was going through. And I tried. I really did try. And on one of the DVD extras about the music, John Burlingame, the film music scholar, appears and says that, to his knowledge, this is the first film score based on the blues hmm. in 1967. Wow. And uh, I trust him to have done our homework for us. I, <laughs> you yeah, know, thanks, John. He may be wrong, but... Uh, well, probably not. He is certainly less wrong than we are repeating <laughs> him. Um <laughs> So I tried to get in kind of a historical imagination of a moment in time when the parts of this score that might seem like the simplest and most straightforward parts would have felt new and fresh and specific in a way that might have been challenging a little bit, a little bit gritty just in its musical connotations. I uh, chatted with my parents about this movie. Did they have memories of it? And my mother said she remembered seeing it at the time and being very aware that she was seeing an important movie about grown-up <laughs> issues that was serious and you know ambitious. And so I really tried to inject that into my head to remember that that hangs over all of this. And so maybe some good times, some funk and some groove is the sugar to help that go down. And maybe it goes down easier in my ears 50 years later Maybe the parts of the music that feel easy now, like you said, like that blues thing going back and forth, maybe that would have had a slightly more of a cutting edge just for being less familiar uh, at the time. I want to try and give it credit for that. Sarah Vaughn, Dinah Washington, Count Basie, Gene Krupa, Shirley Horn, Ella Fitzgerald. I'm just looking through the list of people that he's worked with. Miles Davis. I think he, he worked on Miles Davis's last album. Diana Ross, of course, from uh, he produced The Wiz. That's where he met Michael Jackson. That's right. So I want to mention that this score was not nominated for Best Score that year because another score by Quincy Jones was his score for In Cold Blood, mm-hmm. which I think is a movie that has aged a lot better because it's so cold and arty and harsh. And Quincy Jones, in the very same year, showed, I think, a much more cold and arty and harsh potential in film scoring there that is uh, more impressive to me, and I think more dramatically clear, uh, at least 60 years later. So 
whatever my reservations or uncertainties about this score, I don't think that it's about Quincy Jones's capacities as a film composer. I think it's about this particular project. And I'd be interested to look at some of his other scores because he was so multifaceted and had all of these different styles kind of competing and blending inside of him. I mean, In Cold Blood, that must be in the bucket, right? Is the color purple in there too? I would be so happy if another one of his scores came out. I'm pretty sure In Cold Blood is in there. It's the one he always said he was the proudest of. Before we get to the bucket, though, there were just a couple of lines from his autobiography I wanted to read. Just about how film scoring fits into this enormous career that stretches in all directions. He basically scored 30, 40 movies in a period of about 15 years. That was his Hollywood years. And then he mostly stopped. The Color Purple was kind of a late addition because he was producing the movie. And he said, first of all, that he got spooked when he heard that Hitchcock had fired Bernard Herrmann because he didn't like his score to Torn Curtain, even though they had this legendary collaboration. And he said in his autobiography, This capricious behavior induced in me a hovering paranoia, because hardly ever is the original composer asked to rewrite his score. A screenwriter might get a second shot at a screenplay, but if you compose a score that doesn't work, you're history and they call someone else, especially if the director has led you down the wrong path. I didn't see that kind of future for myself. And then he also says about why he left town. I'd done all I could in the medium anyway. I felt that Henry Mancini, Johnny Mandel, Benny Carter, and Duke Ellington were all pioneers of jazz-influenced film scores. I'd tried to bring the sensibility of modern R&B into scoring. Which was interesting to me that he felt he had sort of a role to play in pushing the style. And I think you see that in this movie... This movie, 1967, we've mentioned on other episodes, there's this perception, somewhat true, that there was kind of a hole in the history of film music in the 60s, in the late 60s and early 70s, where producers didn't really want orchestral scores and they didn't want classical techniques of film scoring that mostly this show is about. They wanted pop songs and they wanted pop sounds and they wanted kind of music that would appeal to the youth. And this is right in the hole mm -hmm. that Quincy Jones is operating so he in some ways represents the uh, the opposing team in hmm. terms of technique. And when you said, I'm not even sure how much of this was spotted to the picture. Yeah, it sort of shows in the way that things are mapped on here. But as we've said before, this sense of there being dark times from which John Williams saved us is way exaggerated and a disservice to not only perfectly serious and complex scores that were being written during those years, but also... The music that uh, represents the alternative is complex and interesting in its own right and in its own way. And accomplished. And accomplished. Yeah, that's that's a word I should have used there. Well, it's the word I used there. It's the word, yeah. You, you get to use words too. Thank you. I think I had one more thing about him. What was it? Was it, was it something about uh, who Marlon Brando slept with? <laughs> uh, everyone? <laughs> um, oh, oh, it was this thing I found... When I was searching for commentary on this score, of which there's only so much because it kind of speaks for itself. You either dig it or you don't, and it doesn't submit to analysis that needs to be wordy. God knows we tried, but... So one of the few sources that did mention this score kind of tipped me off to look up this screed from uh, the journal Films and Review. In 1968, this critic, Paige Cook, was writing about how movie scoring had gone down the tubes... And I thought this was interesting to just hear it being said from within that era's perspective. His essay begins here. Music has all but disappeared from films. Noise has replaced it. 
what was once a functioning part of the cinematic art form has deteriorated into an assortment of auditory effects which derive when they derive from anything beside ineptitude from the major and minor neuroses of Western civilization. Uh, let me Let me skip ahead here. Hitherto, film music never worked against a film, but today's <laughs> quote-unquote scores definitely do. A film score should relate in its themes and treatment thereof to locale, time, plot, and characterizations. These relationships are fundamental and will never be obsolete. The current fashion of imposing unrelated sounds on an audience instead of evoking relevant emotions by means of related sounds is a reversion to the uncouth and even to the barbaric. You can hear the tone of this. It's ridiculous. But what year is this guy writing in? 68. And Okay, well, barbaric is a pretty loaded word to use there, so I'm already a bit on guard about what he may be loading it with. Well, this essay came to my attention because he gets very angry at Lalo Schifrin, as you might imagine, and uh, Neil Hefty, and then he mentions Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is responsible for two banalities, the scores for In the Heat of the Night and The Deadly Affair, which deploy alienating jazz of the monk style. <laughs> which is uh, first a misreading on what kind of jazz this is. Yeah, he's telling on himself about whether or not he's listened to Yeah, it. he doesn't know anything. Yeah. But I can kind of understand how a curmudgeon of that moment might have thought, this is all music that's just kind of trying to be cool in its own right and is not relating to the movie the way that I need and want. His overstating it helped me to think about, all right, there's a difference but he's wrong that it has no relation. It just has a different kind of relation. I mean, I don't think he's wrong that Quincy Jones is trying to sound cool at the same time as he's doing whatever else he wants to do for the movie. But for the most part in this, I felt like that was a valuable dimension to add to this movie because, yeah, I agree with what you were saying earlier, that the audience needed a little bit of cool uh, sugar for the medicine to go down with. One, one more excerpt from this. Slapping hard rock onto a soundtrack <laughs> is a truckling to the ignorances of the nihilists among today's young in the hope of getting somebody into movie theaters and drive-ins. In consequence, non-composers astonished to find so lucrative a market for non-music do not hesitate to collect fat checks for putting together the idiocies of quote-unquote pop music, freak-out blues, and now old hat cool jazz. Well, again... It just shows that he has never actually listened to anything that could be described as hard rock or that Thelonious Monk ever wrote. Yeah. In his ignorant way, he's just saying, I went to the movie and I heard some music that seemed to be there for its relationship to the larger culture rather than its relationship to the movie from within a mm -hmm. sealed off movie music culture. And I don't want to have to know about the larger culture to understand a movie. Yeah. And that's really what's going on in the 60s. The movies are trying to advertise to know about the larger culture as part of the larger culture. And that's yeah. really what this movie is very And that's really what this movie is explicitly trying is to know about something that everybody knows about this culture, but doesn't want to talk about this culture. I guess I'm saying my sympathy for this as far as it goes is I think that is why it has aged, at least in my eyes, into something that's appeared piece because it isn't a uh, walled garden. It, it isn't a little hmm. terrarium like some movies are. It's a participant in a moment in time that has passed. That's true. And Jones's music is a periscope out of this container so that you can see what was going on in culture around it because he couldn't help but channel his deep and accomplished knowledge of, of how it goes into the work of this. And I uh, ultimately, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. The longer I spent with it, the more I felt like you know, 
and Ain't Love But It Sure Is Groovy, I enjoyed putting those tracks on and listening to them. Mm-hmm. They're cool. Yeah, man. Okay, we opened up the bucket a little while ago to peek in at what other Quincy Jones scores might be in there. Let's uh, let's peek a little deeper and see what it might be time for us to talk about next time. All right, there go the balls, as usual. We look at them go. All right, it's time. Here I go. Here's the ball. I've got the number. The number on the ball that I've got here says that our next score is going to be... The 1951 score by Bernard Herrmann for The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm. Ooh. A pretty early score by Bernard Herrmann that is not for Alfred Hitchcock, and that is for this kind of classic archetype of a early sci-fi movie. I think that sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, Benny's been around these parts a lot, but uh, he has a lot of sides to his career that haven't even been touched on here, so... Yeah, I mean, he's got his sci-fi and his fantasy-type scores that maybe we've alluded to here and there. Oh, that's right, we played some of Journey to the Center of the Earth back in the Batman episode, and I think we said then that it was going to be fun to come around to some of his scores that weren't done for Hitchcock. We've only done Hitchcock scores of his so far. Yeah. Look, we know it's a lot of Herman, but there's a reason he's in the bucket so many times. And honestly, there's a reason that he came up this time. And it isn't just that we like him. It's that we picked totally random scores out of the bucket. And then our patrons on Patreon voted them down to the ones they were most interested in. So that's why he was spinning around with the balls in there. And uh, that's why we're going to do another episode about him. Yeah. And then we now have rules about how many episodes must uh, elapse before composers can be repeated. And you can learn all about that. And more importantly, you can cast your own vote to narrow down our candidates to choose which balls go into our ball machine here on Patreon, where you can also avail yourself of a bunch of bonus content we put up there and take advantage of the lovely, lovely community of film music appreciators and aficionados that have gathered there. It really has been fun to get to host all these intelligent listeners. Come join us over on Patreon if you like. Did you mention, I don't think we've even said in the main feed, hey, there's a new bonus episode since last time. There's uh, us talking about Looney Tunes for some reason. (laughs) Check it out. And find out the reason. (laughs) It's not a very good reason, but it's otherwise a pretty good episode. Andy, the reason, it's good enough. Good enough. And let's see here. What other end of episode business do we have to address? Well, we always appreciate it if you uh, write us a review on used to be on iTunes, you know, back when iTunes still had all the podcasts in there, but then they split out podcasts to their own apps. So we stopped being able to say iTunes. And But, you know, this is essentially iTunes. You can write your review on the podcast app. And uh, um, I guess that's it. I guess those are the only things that we've ever uh, talked about at the end of the episode for people to do. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at... Email us, as we've always said. Scoresettlers at gmail.com. Yeah. That's, a, that's how we've always instructed people to talk to we us. We love getting emails. Sure. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for everything. Bernard Herman's up again next time. It's going to be a fun one. See you then. Yeah.